the example of the great men and women who have walked the, the way of faith. Especially today, we want to thank you for the Apostle Paul and for the tremendous example of a Christian that he is. And Lord, we are different from him in so many ways, different in personality, different in intellect and ability, different in culture and place in history. But the thing that we do share in common with him is that we share in the same experience of the Holy Spirit. And we also have the same Word of God in our hands. And we know that you're the same God, the God who blessed Paul, the God who stood with Paul, that you're the same God and that you stand with us today. Help us to trust in you. Help us to reach out to you as he did. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a description of someone for you. Let's just see if you can guess who it is. A man, small with bandy legs, balding, beetle-browed, short-sighted, and so always giving the impression that he's staring, that he's peering at you. Who is it? Well, no, it's not the, the late Paul Daniels. It's another Paul. The Apostle Paul. That is the description of him that's found in the writings of some of his Christian contemporaries. And as such, I think we can take it as being fairly accurate. I mean, if this description had been given by non-Christians at the time, then I think we'd have understandable reasons for suspicion that this was just a, another attempt by Paul's enemies to rubbish him, this time at the physical level. And on the other hand, if Christians had been making up a description of Paul, then I have to say I think it's likely that they would have come up with a somewhat more flattering portrayal than we have here. So it's likely then that that's a pretty accurate description. Picture the scene then. This is the unimpressive physical figure who here after a series of trials is, as a climax to these trials, brought in for an audience with Festus, the Roman governor. That's kind of journeys he did, by the way, up there in this latter part of his life and the kind of time in history that it goes. But he's brought in for an audience with Festus, the Roman governor, and two members of the Jewish aristocracy, a King Agrippa and Bernice. So Paul then comes shambling in, in his chains. And there before him stands Festus. In all likelihood on such an occasion, dressed in the official scarlet robe of the, the Roman governor as a demonstration of his authority. Beside him stands Agrippa. Let's just give him his full title, King Herod Agrippa. Yes, he's the latest in the line of Israel's most morally corrupt rulers. One writer, R.B. Rackham, he sums up their infamous history like this. Their founder, Herod the Great, had tried to destroy the infant Jesus. His son Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, beheaded John the Baptist and won from the Lord the title of Fox. 
His grandson, Agrippa I, slew James, the son of Zebedee, with the sword. Now we see Paul brought before Agrippa's son. What a bloodline. But Herod Agrippa, he was actually considered too young when his, his father died to be appointed king of all Judea. And so in the meantime, the Romans had awarded him the status of king, a puppet king, over a tiny territory within what is now Lebanon. And as for Bernice, well, she was the slightly younger sister of Agrippa, who'd been married to her uncle, was by this time widowed, and was now rumored to be living in an incestuous relationship with Agrippa. But you see, knowing the, the vanity and the pride of the Herods, well, we can only imagine that in the company of the, the Roman governor, that they would be dressed in the royal robes of purple, with their crowns upon their head. And this is the sight that greets Paul. This physically unimpressive man changed, changed, sorry, clothed, no doubt, in the, the rough clothes of a working man. And before him stands worldly power at its most proud and at its most corrupt. And Paul is here to defend the gospel. After what really was a, a series of four trials from Acts 21 to 25, where essentially the same argument was repeated to various different groups. So now here, this series of trials reaches its climax. In this final trial, before the highest-ranking Roman and Jewish officials in the land, and again, with slight differences of emphasis, Paul repeats his defense and brings it to a climax. So how will Paul do? How will he acquit himself? Really, it should have been a no contest. No ordinary man should have had the resources to stand before such opposition as this. Paul, though, was no ordinary man. And in Jesus Christ and in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, he had resources that reached far beyond his opponent's understanding. But before we, we look at Paul's defense, we need to, I think, first deal with, with two issues. One relatively minor, the other much more significant. The first is, what was the reason for this appeal to Caesar? Made at his first trial, that is before Festus in, in Acts 25.11, in the absence of which Agrippa says in Acts 26.32, Paul could have been set free. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, I believe there were two reasons for this appeal. One was Paul's own personal safety. For you see, this appeal was made at the time when in order to ingratiate himself with the Jews over whom he'd just recently been made governor, when Festus had just suggested moving Paul's trial back to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, where Paul could never have got a fair trial because of Jewish interference and Jewish pressure, and where there would always be the danger of an attempt at assassination. As he appealed to Caesar, therefore, he put himself under Caesar's protection with the guarantee as a Roman citizen such as he was of a trial before Caesar in Rome. 
The other, and I believe the, the main reason for this appeal to Caesar, lies in the fact that the personal court of Caesar really was the highest court in human terms at this time of all. There was no higher court in the world. And appeal to Caesar was only open to Roman citizens who were themselves very much the privileged minority in the Roman Empire. So as Paul appealed to Caesar then, what he was seeking to do was really finally bring things to a conclusion. He'd been pursued and attacked throughout much of Europe and Asia for many years. He had over a period of two years, as we've said, gone through a series of four, soon to be five trials. And he wants it brought to a head. He wants his case, the case against Christianity, finally and decisively to be settled by Caesar. The other, much more significant matter we have to deal with is what were the charges, the charges brought against him? It's before looking at his defense, I think it's helpful to identify just what he was charged with. And that's made clearest I believe in Paul's response to these charges at one of his earlier trials in Acts 25 verse 8, where he says, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. You see, Paul basically, by his preaching of the the good news of Christ and by his Christian lifestyle, his Christian living, he's been accused of two things of undermining Judaism, and of threatening Rome. The first of these charges being based on misunderstanding, the other on outright deception. You see, the facts are that while Paul did teach that salvation was won by faith in Christ alone and was a gift of God's grace, and while he did teach, he certainly did, that salvation was open to both Jew and Gentile on exactly the same basis, and that following salvation, it's only the the moral law that guides a Christian as to how to live in order to please God. It's only this law that's binding on believers. Yet, Paul never taught that Jews who came to faith in Christ then had to disregard the rest of the law, the sacrificial, the ritual, the ceremonial law in its entirety. Now you see, rather, as far as Paul was concerned, once that basis, the basis of salvation by faith in Christ alone was established, once this was there in principle, then all these other things were a matter of choice. They were down to what an individual was comfortable with, say because of their background, Jewish background, culture, etc. So these other things were then permissible for Jews, but never to be enforced on Gentiles. In fact, when Paul first heard that this was being said of him, he was actually arrested on his way to the temple prepared for the sake of not causing offence to the Jews to go through the very kind of rituals that they said 
he taught against. Howard Marshall, he says here, it is ironical that this should be the charge against Paul at a time when he himself was undergoing purification so that he would not defile the temple. As for the other charge, that Paul's preaching that Christianity was a threat against Rome, well, well, that was just a distortion, a deception by the Jews that was aimed just at getting the Romans on side. You see, what they were trying to do was, was play on Rome's fear of rebellion, of a threat to Caesar's authority, by saying that the Christian teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this threatened Rome, that this was a threat to Caesar. You can catch the flavor of, of this in Acts 24, 5, where he says, they say there, we found this man, that is Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots against the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now, of course, all this was never true. This was a distortion, and they knew it. For Jesus as Lord, was never going to be a threat to the physical, this world authority of Rome and its Caesar. But what was Paul's response to these charges? What was his defense? This little bandy, beetle-browed man, as he stands with all this world's power arrayed before him, what's his defense? going to be? Well, first I believe he establishes his credentials, and that is that really he previously had been the ultimate Jew. He'd been an exemplary Jew of the strictest party of the Jews, the Pharisees, and known among them as being a man who fulfilled the Old Testament law to the letter. 26, 4 and 5. The Jews all know the way I have lived. Since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And that as such a Jew, he had, verse 6, the hope of Israel at the heart of his life. That is the hope of a coming Messiah. The hope of a Messiah who would usher in an age where evil would be vanquished and where justice and peace would be enjoyed by all. And, like so many of them, he then had felt a sense of revulsion when some claimed that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. Yesterday he was revolted by the thought that God could become a man. Revolted by the thought that the Messiah the Messiah should suffer and die to the extent that he'd been at the very forefront of Judaism's attack on the church. He himself had hunted and harried Christians. He'd tracked them down. He'd made sure they were punished. He'd voted for their death. He was a man who had the blood of Christians on his hands. In verse 11 of chapter 26, Paul says there, in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. To persecute them. Now, the word here that's used for obsession actually carries within it undertones 
of madness. That's what Paul's saying, that his hatred of Christ, his hatred of the church, that it had so consumed him that it had actually driven him beyond reason. These are Paul's credentials. That he had been at least as opposed to Jesus Christ and his church as his opponents now are opposed to him and to his preaching of this Christ. But Paul moves on his defense from establishing his credentials to sharing his conversion. And there are two main pertinent features of this conversion. That is that it was a meeting with the risen Jesus and that it was an experience of light. You see, that's the heart of Paul's conversion. That's the heart of the Christian message. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is what turned Paul's world upside down. This is what forced him to view God, man, and himself in an entirely different way. It was the fact that he had met with the risen Jesus Christ that turned the mind, not of some soppy sentimentalist, but of an iron-willed fanatic. This is what turned everything for him totally on its head. Now, in verse 8 here, Paul really puts Agrippa on the spot with the question, why should any of you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Because you see, within Judaism, there was a belief among many, and it was taught in the Old Testament, for example, in Daniel 12 too, that the time of the Messiah would be accompanied by the resurrection of the dead. So, This is his logic. If at the time of the Messiah, the dead are to be raised, is it too much then to believe that the Messiah himself could be raised from the dead? That's what Paul's asking Agrippa here. Indeed, this is what Christians sought in those early days to open the eyes of Judaism to. That this is what their Old Testament, this is what it teaches this is what's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For example, in Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, Agrippa, I believe, would in theory agree that this is possible. That it is possible, theoretically, that God whose power is unlimited could raise the dead. But it's even possible, though totally mind-blowing, that God could become a man and die and rise from the dead. But from what we read later, I don't believe that in practice, Agrippa could begin to take this and really take it in. It was too big for him to contemplate. It was too far beyond his own experience. And I want to say, how many people are there today, though, who in exactly the same kind of way, who write off God, who write off Jesus, God becoming a man, who write off resurrection, the fact that he rose from the dead, how many people are there who write these things off without really actually thinking about them? Because they're beyond our experience. Because 
This world and our experience and common sense maybe tells them that this is just not possible. What I would ask, and I would ask please, is look at the evidence. I mean, to begin with, I believe it takes more faith to believe that a world like this came about by chance than it does to believe in a creator. And I want to say that the evidence for Jesus... The evidence for the fact of his resurrection, when you actually look at it, it is, I believe, compelling. It maybe is beyond our experience. It does maybe go beyond what we believe is common sense. But I want to say, wouldn't you expect that of an infinite, all-powerful God? The second major dimension to Paul's experience as he met with the risen Jesus was an experience of light. The light of Christ as a symbol of His holiness, of His presence, the presence of the living God was so powerful that at first it overwhelms Him. It blinds Him. But then as Paul's mind and Paul's heart are opened up and transformed, he then receives from Christ a message of light. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. Paul's mission then from the very beginning was to turn men and women from darkness to light. To turn them from their sin. To turn them from living a life of rebellion against God, living in darkness, to turn them instead to experience the light of God, to experience the life of God, an intimacy of relationship with God that before Jesus Christ was unimaginable. And this involves being set free from the grip of Satan by the power of God. Because you see, when we sin, and we all sin, We all at times go our own way rather than God's way. Well, behind it all, Satan, you see, is the deceiver who tempts us to sin. And as we sin, we put ourselves into his hands. And once he has got us in his hands, and once his grip has tightened around us, only God has the power to set us free. Only God. We can't do it ourselves. When we turn to God, though, when we accept what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, that in Christ he became a man and as a man stood in our place, as God paid the price we could never pay, that price of a perfect life, then what this, you see, leads to is forgiveness and freedom. Just listen to what it says from verse 17, Paul's vision of Jesus, the words of Jesus. I will rescue you from your own people from the, and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Jesus brings freedom from the dominating power of sin. 
And Jesus brings forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sins to all who put their trust in him. And this is what one writer, David Gooden, what he says here. He says, real guilt, real guilt, not false psychological guilt, remains at the heart of human unease. And unless it finds true forgiveness, honestly purchased by the sacrifice of Christ, it destroys peace of mind, corrodes all other values, and haunts the future. He finishes, we need forgiveness more than we need our daily bread. You see, this is the message that that Paul received at his conversion. This is the light that broke into his life and that he was then called to share with others. And not just with his fellow Jews, but with all men, all women, with the Gentiles. This message that forgiveness, freedom, salvation, the light of God, the life of God is available to all on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. This was Paul's response to those charges brought against him. That he was no heretic. He was no backslidden Jew. But rather, he was a true Jew. A completed Jew. A Jew whose eyes have been opened by God to see that the hope of Israel, verse 6, that which Israel had longed and waited for, hoped for, had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Their Messiah, our Messiah, has come. And that he and the message he preached, that the Christ that he proclaimed, were no threat to Rome because he and his Lord weren't in the business of making rebels against Rome or any other human power authority, but rather they were in the business of fashioning and informing the kind of fulfilled and complete individuals who would be the most productive and trustworthy of society's citizens. Do you feel sorry for little Paul now? You don't have to, do you? Because Paul's not the one in the dock anymore. It's Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice. And you definitely catch the sense here that they know it and that they're feeling the pressure. Verse 24, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time, You can persuade me to become a Christian. And it's here that I want to finish. As in response to this, Paul calls for commitment. Just listen to what he says. Verse 29, Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, and that includes everyone here, may become what I am, except for these chains. Well, I ask you then, we drew the picture at the beginning of little, bandy, bald, beetle-browed Paul. 
there in his chains, confronted by the world in all its power and pride, rulers of this world dressed in their robes of scarlet and purple, dripping with gold, soldiers surrounding at their command. But then I ask you, but who here is truly free? Who here is the strong man? Who here is the one who knows peace and joy in their heart? Who here is fulfilled and knows no fear? And certainly Paul won his case. Verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. And I want to ask, what is our response to all this today? To this example of poverty, for me it's this. Lord, stretch my mind, my heart, and my spirit. And that of all of us here who believe. And give us and help us to grow into something of the same kind of experience of you. That we also might be able, not just to stand for you, but to win the victory for you. No matter what opposition this world and culture and power might bring against us. Help us to win the victory. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the fact that Paul, that his faith was so firmly rooted. And we know the experience that it had of you, but Lord, he shared that same experience with us. We know what transformed this man. We know that it was the transforming power, the light and the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, you're the God who continues to transform your people today. Lord, help us to turn to you. Help us to give our lives to you that your glory might be revealed in us in something of the same way. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.